so there is something that is always, always in need. And the tougher the times are, uh, the more this is needed. And that thing is compassionate and decisive leadership. And a lot of times when people start talking about leadership, there's a whole bunch of, especially in a church setting, there's a whole bunch of people that just immediately like check out because they're like, "Ah, well, I'm not a leader. But you are. You are. Whether, Whether you're a leader somehow in your job, in the marketplace, all the way down to a role that you fill in your family, Everybody, to some form or another, to some degree or another, has been given a certain level of leadership. And, and if, if you are, which I just established that you all are, a leader of some sort, Jesus has given us four words. Four words that apply to this. And these four words have stopped me in my tracks many times throughout my life. Like these are, these are big. When I heed these words, I am much better at what I do uh, within the context of leading things, especially with here at the church, but even in my personal life and with my family and these other things. When I don't heed these words, uh, I tend to lose the respect, rightfully so, of the people around me. Um, so if you're, if you're new with this, we are in the fifth week of this series, and we have been looking at um, the Gospel of Mark, which is... Peter's account of his experience with Jesus, that when Peter was in prison in Rome, right before he died, uh, after 30 years of talking to anybody who would listen about his experience with Jesus, uh, his traveling companion at the time, John Mark, essentially coaxed Peter's story out of him one last time so that he could write it down. And within this, when when Mark was writing, uh, he wasn't writing the Bible, And it's so difficult for us sometimes as we're reading through these passages and these things, you know, because we open the Bible and we're like, oh, we're reading the Bible. Mark wasn't writing the Bible. There was no Bible. He had no idea what the Bible would be. Mark was just writing Peter's account so that that generation and generations beyond would be able to read it and know Peter's story and his experience with Jesus. And when Peter was given Mark the story, He put Jesus' message right up front, right up front. And it was a message that Jesus repeated over and over and over again. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. So repent and embrace it. That was his message. And we've said throughout this series, that whole repent and embrace it. There's been a whole negative spin kind of on throughout evangelical American Christianity of that repent. You know, you get the visions of like the old school, like tent revival, a guy slamming on a pulpit, spit flying, repent, you're going to hell. Not that kind of, that's not what Jesus was saying. He was just saying, turn, embrace this new worldview that I am presenting and adjust your life accordingly. Now, previously, as we've been going through this story and Peter's experience uh, with Jesus, as Mark tells us about it, um, Jesus had just put the religious leaders uh, in their place. Last week, we left off with Jesus calling them hypocrites, which was not a good start, not what they needed from uh, Jesus, not what the disciples wanted when he first encountered the religious leaders. But this is what Jesus did accused them of being hypocrites, said they were actually elevating their own traditions, their own rules that have been made up over the actual rules of God, and even more so, were putting their made-up rules and their traditions over people. 
which was not the intent at all. So he sends them packing back south to Jerusalem, all angry, and they're ready to kill him right off the bat. And uh, after they head down there, Jesus uh, and the rest of his uh, disciples and a lot of the crowd that would follow him wherever he went, they headed north of Galilee to a region called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. And something extremely extraordinary takes place while they get all the way up into the northern part of the kingdom. And Jesus turns to his disciples. Here's what happens. He turns to his disciples and he says, hey guys, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And of course, we know if you've attended tapestry very long, Peter's pretty much the only disciple that ever speaks up in these situations. And he says, well, some people say you're a prophet. Jesus is probably thinking, eh, fair enough. Others, he says, others say that you're, you're John the Baptist reincarnated. He probably thought, eh, doesn't make sense. We were alive at the same time, but oh well. <laughs> and then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, yeah, 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 okay. But who do you think that I am? You've been with me. You've heard the things I've been saying. You've seen the things I've done. Who do you say than I am. And so Peter speaks up and he says, Jesus, we believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus, he accepts uh, this description. He accepts this title. Most people, <laughs> any other person, not just most, would have been like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on back. I'm not that. I mean, I'm great, but I ain't that. But Jesus didn't. He accepted it. And then he says, gentlemen, you're right. That is who I am. And on this, that is that idea of that's who I am, and I have come to bring a new thing. I am going to build on that foundation something unique. I'm going to establish a brand new movement. A movement which we would later call the church. And then they began the long journey south because they had gotten a couple days north of uh, Galilee. They begin along the journey south, they go past Capernaum, down past the Sea of Galilee. They start getting down into Judea, the southern part of the kingdom. And eventually, in uh, Mark's rendition of Peter's experience, they're going to end up in Jerusalem. And as they traveled, Jesus once again looked at his disciples, right, as he did on a regular basis. And he started to go over yet again what was going to happen once they ultimately ended up in Jerusalem, which was where the, the final destination of their experience would be? Here's what he said. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is how Jesus would refer to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the chief teachers of the law. And then this next part was the shocker part for them as they were listening. And that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, this was so confusing to his disciples. And the reason was, is because they had just announced that they believed Jesus was the Messiah. And the Messiah can't be killed, <laughs> right? That's not very Messiah-like. Son of God, there's no killing Son of God. That's not how it works, 
And they lived in a day and age where they believed good things happened to good people. If bad things were happening to you, you were bad in some form. And Jesus wasn't just a good person. He was like a God person. So there's no way something as bad as being killed could happen to Jesus. So the disciples, I imagine, I just picture them standing around in their group. They're kind of like looking at each other, maybe mumbling under their breath. And eventually they all kind of look at Peter and whoever's closest kind of like elbows him in the side. Like, Peter, Peter, you need to say something. Speak up. Jesus being all negative about him being killed, which doesn't make sense with him being the Messiah. And like the larger crowd that's gathered around, they're starting to murmur. He's going to lose the crowd. Peter, you've got to speak up. Get Jesus to get back in line. So here's what we see, verse 32. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, before we go any further, I mean, what kind of guts does that take? The guy you just said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and then one verse later, you're rebuking him. Like, I cannot even imagine the spinal fortitude (laughs) that it took for him to do that. But here he was, rebuking him. Basically, he tells him, Jesus, you need to knock this off, this negative talk, this doom and gloom, right? You're losing the crowd. You're scaring people. Now, after this rebuke that Peter gives Jesus, um, Jesus knows that it's not just Peter. He knows all of the other disciples put him up to it, that they were all thinking the same thing, right? So here's what we find, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples... I imagine he kind of looked at them and then looked back at Peter. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Now, pause. If I was Peter, and I'm telling my version of my experience with Jesus to Mark for him to write it down, I would not put in there that Jesus called me Satan. (laughs) Like, that would not be in there. Like, I would conveniently omit that, that instance, right? I don't want, for however long this story is going to be read, for people to know that that happened. But it did happen. And so Peter put it in there. So get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, in other words, you want a king and a kingdom like all of the other kings and kingdoms. But I'm not that king. And this is not that kingdom. That's not why I have come. And then to kind of emphasize the point, he stops, he gathers all the larger crowd in close because he was kind of just talking to his disciples at this moment, gathers them in close because he wants everybody to hear what comes next, right? As they continue their journey towards Jerusalem. Here's what happened, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And the crowd, I'm telling you, when he said this, you could have heard a pin drop. Like as everybody was just allowing that to settle in. Because basically what Jesus was saying was he was looking at them. He's like, listen, all of you following me. The reason that you're following me is because up to this point, it's been good times. There's been healings. And that is, you know, you guys have enjoyed that. Some of you have been the beneficiaries of that. 
There's been teaching like you haven't heard before that has inspired you, that you've enjoyed sitting and listening to. There's been me poking fun of and calling the religious leaders names. I know a lot of you enjoyed that. Up to now, it has been a good time, but it is not going to be fun anymore. This isn't going to be like a parade anymore. This is not going to be the festival atmosphere that has followed me everywhere we went up to this point. From now on, if you follow me to Jerusalem, it is going to cost you something. So you need to decide now. Are you willing to pay the price it is going to take? But, but, but disguised in this ominous warning that Jesus is handing out here was an extraordinary invitation. Here's what he said next. He said, for whoever wants to save their life, which all of us, (laughs) we all want to save our life. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And this was Jesus's way of saying, listen, everybody dies, right? No matter how healthy you are, no matter how careful you are, no matter how well you take care of yourself, no matter how much hard work you put in to save your life, everybody dies. You're all gonna lose it. But in the meantime, before that happens, if you only live for yourself, you will only have yourself to show for yourself in the end. And then here's the invitation part of it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, in this moment, he was inviting them. And I think that he's inviting us as well. He was inviting them to live and lose our lives with purpose. With purpose. So, suddenly, Peter and the boys have a decision to make. Right? Do we stay up north? fish our lives out (laughs) up here in Galilee? Or do we accept the invitation to live lives on purpose and follow Jesus? Because after all, everybody ends up somewhere in life. It's the intentional people that end up somewhere on purpose. Now, I think Peter and the guys, they weren't the only ones to have a decision to make. I think those of us today sitting in this room, those of us watching and listening to this, we've got a decision to make as well. Will we be consumed with preserving our own lives? And and that's always the temptation, isn't it? It's always the temptation uh, to follow, follow, uh, even though we can't actually preserve our lives, to follow the path that we think will preserve it, right? And a lot of times that path is actually us following our fears. And so the question is, kind of, are we going to follow our fear? Because fear always invites us to follow the path of self-preservation, doesn't it? When we find ourselves scared, uncertain of the future, the path most of us takes is the one that we think's the safest that's going to get us the furthest. And Jesus is letting know, listen, letting us know, if you follow that path, you not only won't preserve your life, but when you get to the end of your life, you won't have anything significant to show for it. And Peter never forgot that day. I can just imagine some of the emotions that he had 
as he was relaying this part of his story to Mark. The fear, the uncertainty, the confusion of like, oh my goodness, what are we getting ourselves into? And listen, for Peter and for the rest of the disciples, it would have been far easier for them at that point to just say, well, okay, <laughs> that sounds ominous. We're going to stay back here in Galilee. We're going to go back to fishing. But instead, they decided to follow Jesus. And because they made that decision in that moment, that is the only reason that we know who Peter is. That is the only reason we know Peter's story. And that's the only reason why Peter's story is a story that's worth telling. And how you react and how you respond, right? In the, in the decisions that you make, especially, especially in tough times. And man, the last couple of years <laughs> dealing with this whole COVID thing, it has been weird times. And for some people, it's been tough times. But the decisions that you make in times like that, they are going to dictate what story you end up being able to tell. So Peter, the rest of the disciples, they decide to stick with Jesus, right? And they head to Jerusalem. So jumping forward a little bit, chapter 9, verse 30, it says they left that place, which they were still up north, passed through Galilee, and they were all the way up there, started that southern journey. And let's fast forward into the trip a little bit. Skip over to chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking if you're paying attention closely, which I'm pretty sure is all of you. Here, here, here's what you're thinking. You're thinking. Andy, you've weirdly established through this whole time that they were way up north, right? Now, all of a sudden, they've got to go up to Jerusalem? That doesn't make any sense, which... You're right, except for that up direct uh, sentence right there, that, that's not directional, that's altitude. <laughs> they were up north and they headed south to Jerusalem, but you had to go through what became a pretty large valley as you approached Jerusalem, and then it was built up on a hill. And so when you see that going up to Jerusalem, that's because they physically had to climb up to get there. That's what that was all about. And so Peter makes this note, that Jesus is leading the way, as if he is so anxious, right? So, so um, uh, ready to be there and to face what he's going to face there that he doesn't just mill around as the whole group is moving. He gets out front and he's like, let's go. We've got somewhere to be. Let's get moving, right? Even after all the gloomy prediction of what is going to happen when he gets there, he was ready to get there. So then, as the crowd was following, Jesus talks to his disciples again, right? And he's done this three times now. Again, he took the 12 aside, told them what, he, what was going to happen to him. And here's what he said. And he gets pretty graphic with it this time. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And then he turns around, I imagine, and begins to head south towards Jerusalem. And this is so confusing to his followers as he said this once again, right? But then again, there's something really interesting takes place. Right after Jesus gives this graphic description of what lies ahead when they get there, here's what happened. Immediately, verse 35, very next verse. Then James and John, 
the sons of Zebedee, who were two of the original disciples, they'd been with him longer than any of the rest, they came to him. In other words, that came to him, that's implying that they got him kind of off when he was off to the side. They didn't just say it in front of everybody else. They wanted this to be more of a private conversation, right? They came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I talked about the spinal fortitude of Peter as he rebuked Jesus right after he called him the Messiah. Jesus had barely finished the sentence of I'm going to be betrayed and killed. And these guys pull him aside and say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do stuff for us. We want you to do stuff for us. We need a favor is what they were really saying. By the way, by the way, Jesus, I mean, that's terrible about all the mocking, the flogging, the spitting, the dying. Sorry about that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But we need something. And I'm amazed through here at how patient Jesus stays with these guys. Because I would not have. This is reason number five million as to why I couldn't be Jesus. But he stays so patient with them. Here's what he says, verse 36. What do you want for me to do? <laughs> he doesn't say, what are you thinking? Didn't you just hear what I said? What's getting ready to happen? All of the talk about a bigger, different kingdom. And here, no, 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 he, he was patient. What do you want for me to do? And listen, this question, what do you want for me to do? This is an important question. And we're going to circle around back to it at the end. But he, here's what they asked for, verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now the left and the right of the king, which they assumed he was going to become, was places of prominence and prestige. There was influence and there was power to be had. And when they asked this question, they were even specific about when. They said, let us be uh, the left or the right in your glory. The whole spitting, flogging, dying part, we're gonna hang back during that. <laughs> we don't wanna be right up front next to you during that. But once you take your kingdom, that's when we want to be next to you. Right, when you establish that, and Jesus, I imagine, just smiled and he said to him, guys, you have no idea what you're asking. Well, word about this conversation starts to spread around. Right? And here's what happens. Verse 41. When the 10, the other disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They got mad, but they didn't get mad because those two had offended or upset Jesus with either their question or the timing of their question. They were mad because it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. Jesus, they're going to get two cookies. We only have one cookie. <laughs> this, was, this was why they got mad. This was what they were upset at. And an argument breaks out amongst the disciples over who's going to be the best. I've been here longer. Yeah, but I'm the one he loves. Yeah, but I've done more for him. Yeah, but I'm the only one that speaks up and talks to him. And they got into a fight about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And I can't imagine the frustration that Jesus must have felt as he sat and listened to them argue about this. I can't imagine. Because he, he has been telling them from the very beginning how this whole thing was going to go. But they didn't get it. So Jesus, in all of his patience, tries again to explain it to them. He says it like this, verse 42. You know that those who are regarded rulers of the Gentiles or the Romans, 
They lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Well, let me paraphrase this in a couple ways for you. Here, here's the first way. You know how those in position of authority leverage their authority for their own benefit? You know how that happens? Oh, yeah, yeah, we know how that. Or, or let me, maybe this way. You know how those with resources and influence leverage their resources and influence to gain even more resources and influence for themselves? You know, how that, oh yeah, we're familiar with that. And they're probably in the back of their mind thinking, yeah, we're really familiar with that because we're on the not have the resources and influence side. So yeah, we know how people do that. And they're like, of course, of course we know. Why do you think, Jesus, we want the positions on your left and on your right? Because we know this is how it works. And Jesus pauses and he looks at them and he looks at us. And then he gives those four words I mentioned earlier. The four words that stop me in my tracks over and over and over. Here's what he said. You know how that happens? They're like, yeah, we know what happens. He says, not so with you. It's not how it's going to work if you follow me. Not so with you. I am not that king. This is not that kingdom. I have come to reverse the order of things. No, it is not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, and I like this because Jesus is giving us permission to want to be great. That's okay. You're allowed it. You want to be great? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how to be great in my kingdom. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And before they could kind of catch their breath and begin to object, he digs a little deeper. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. And I imagine like their minds were just spinning like, what do you mean, what do you mean? And I think Jesus, before they can even object and start to ask him questions, I picture in my mind him dropping that and then just turning south and looking towards the city of Jerusalem. And then he says something that takes away all of their excuses. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. James, John, you want to be served? Do you think you're better than me? I mean, that's a shocker. Because Jesus is like, I came to do the serving. So if you want to be served, you're elevating yourself above me. Then he says this, not only did he come to serve but also to give his life as ransom for many. (laughs) Any questions about that, guys? We clear on that? All right, let's go to Jerusalem. And this was so confusing to them. They're like, what is he talking about? Give his life? Ransom for many? Take up a cross? And I'm sure they were thinking at this point, like, "Ah, this is getting strange. Maybe we should have stayed in Galilee. Maybe we made the wrong choice, right? And then Peter tells us that as they're making their way south, that they come to the city of Jericho, which is just outside of Jerusalem, not very far. 
And something extraordinary happens. Look at this, verse 46. They came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, because there was always a crowd following him, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. After all, Jesus is an important rabbi. After all, Jesus is on a mission. He's got somewhere to be, important things to do. And both of those things were true. But this wasn't going to stop blind Bartimaeus. He shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? And Peter is telling this story to Mark and he probably told him, we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe the audacity of this guy. Right? But Jesus was so anxious in that moment to get to Jerusalem. He seemed just so focused on what was going to happen when he got there. It was as if he was being drawn by some external force beyond himself to get there, get there, get there. But when he hears this blind man call his name, look at what happens, verse 49. Jesus stopped. He stopped. He stopped to illustrate his message. He stopped to show what his kingdom was going to look like. He stopped to show all of the crowd who was watching that he was there to turn things upside down. That his kingdom was going to be a place where people who had, who had influence and who had resources would use those for people who did not have influence nor resources. And think about this. Jesus is on his way, because we know the end of the story. Jesus is on his way to the single most important appointment in the history of mankind. He is on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill what he came for, to die on the cross. I mean, that's the reason that he was here. And here's why this is so convicting. Because Jesus, on his way to do the most important thing in the history of mankind, he was busy. And aren't we all busy? Don't we all always have something to do? Aren't our calendars full? Somehow, even in COVID, when we weren't allowed to do anything, somehow there was always something to do. Something pulling at our time, taking at our intention. And here's the point of this narrative. Sometimes following Jesus means stopping. Even when what you're doing is important. And Mark tells us this. Jesus stopped, and here's what he said. Call him. Call the guy that's interrupting this important thing. Call the guy that is bothering me as the crowd is trying to move forward. Call him. And so they did. And then look at this. Verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, blind Bartimaeus, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And then Jesus gives one of those extraordinary statements that he would do from time to time, that when we go through and we read them, it kind of doesn't make sense. It actually seems like Jesus is insulting the person that he is talking to, right? 
This is one of those statements. And this is one of those things that are in the Gospels that lead me to have confidence that the Gospels are an an accurate portrayal of what took place. Because people wouldn't just make this stuff up and put this in if their goal was to try and formulate and create some kind of movement. Because this doesn't make people look better. This doesn't inspire people to follow. Here's... I believe this asked, Jesus asked this question, though, this thing that he said. I, I believe he asked this question of blind Bartimaeus, not for Bartimaeus' sake. I believe that he asked this question for everybody around that was listening and for those of us who would read it later. Here's what he asked, verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Does that question sound familiar? I can just imagine as Jesus asks that question, he kind of turns and looks over his shoulder to James and John, right? Fine Bartimaeus, do you want to sit at my right hand, my left hand? Looks over at them for their ridiculous request that they made. Bartimaeus says, no, I'm not looking for power. I'm not looking for influence. I'm not looking for something I can leverage to take myself higher. Here's what he says. Rabbi, I want to see. I just want to see. Listen, that, that is always a good request. It's never a bad request. If James and John would have been asking for that, Jesus, 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 we want something. Help us to see. If the rest of the disciples would have been asking for that, if the crowd that was following Jesus would have been asking for that, they would have been understanding what Jesus was trying to tell them this whole time. It wouldn't have been such a mystery to them. It wouldn't have all been so confusing to them. And in fact, I think we should pray on a regular basis, Jesus, help us to see. Help us to see the world around us the way that you see it. Help us to see our spouse the way that you see them, our family the way that you see them, our coworkers the way that you see them, our neighbors. Help us to see so that when we see the way that you see, we will act the way that you would act. It's fascinating how such a simple prayer such a simple request could change the way that we arrange our entire lives. Here's how Jesus responds to Bartimaeus' request if I just want to see. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The road to Jerusalem. The road to a destiny the road to the most important event in the history of mankind. Now, we're going to pick up the story there next week. But before we go, I want to circle back around to those four words. Not so with you. And here's the question that those four words beg us to ask. What would it look like in your life if you became a not-so-with-you 
follower of Jesus? What would that look like? Because if you are going to actually follow Jesus, he is going to lead you to use your power and your resources. And it doesn't matter how little amount of power you think you have or how little amount of resources you think you have. Whatever you do have, Jesus is going to lead you to use that not for your benefit, but for the benefit of those who have less. Because that is the application in a nutshell of the commandment, the singular commandment of Jesus. Love others the way you have been loved. Because Jesus leveraged his ultimate power, his ultimate influence and resources, not for his own gain, but for us. Love others the way I have loved you. Which leads us back to that prayer a couple weeks ago that I encourage you all to pray on a regular basis. Jesus, what does love require of me today? And that's a dangerous thing to ask. Because if you ask and you mean it, he'll let you know. And spoiler, it's going to cost you something. But it's going to lead to so much more. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for, for the depth of these records that we have of people's experience with you. That we are so lucky to see these instances, to see these things that you said, to gain better understanding of how you worked, how the kingdom of God works. But Lord, at the same time, this is so convicting. And if we call ourselves followers of you, Lord, this puts us on the hook. Because we cannot follow you and live our lives to save our life and to benefit ourselves. Lord, I pray this week as we go out and we ponder this question and this idea, Lord, I pray that as we start doing things throughout this week that are self-preserving, that, that are self-advancing, where we're leveraging what ultimately you have given us in the first place, where we are leveraging that to our own advantage as opposed to for the sake of people who have less. Lord, I pray you begin to make it clear. Let us see it as you see it. And then let us respond accordingly. Lord, I thank you that not only have you called us to this style of life, but Lord, you are patient with us as we mess it up. But Lord, let us continually strive to see as you see and to ask the question, what does love require of me? And adjust our life accordingly. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to next week as we pick up the narrative there and continue looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of Peter as told by Mark.